Over a million and a half young people flocked to the final World Youth Day Mass in Lisbon last week with Pope Francis. How was the Pope's message received by the world's youth? The Papal Posse, Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal are here with analysis. New evidence is uncovered that seems to reveal that the DOJ has targeted traditional Catholics as domestic terrorists. Member of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Mike Johnson, is here with the latest. And we lost legendary Oscar-winning director William Friedkin this week. We'll feature some great moments from his appearances on The World Over. Plus, I've got a very special announcement for you later in the program. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. The Papal Posse's up next. But first, a disturbing story surfaced earlier this year that suggested the FBI attempted to develop sources within traditional Catholic parishes and communities in order to combat what it called domestic terrorism. House Judiciary Committee member Jim Jordan obtained documents to that effect in March. The committee issued a detailed letter this week outlining new evidence that the Department of Justice and the FBI were targeting traditional Catholic communities from multiple field offices. Joining me with more is U.S. Congressman from Louisiana, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, Mike Johnson. Congressman, thank you for being here. When we last had you on the program in April, this investigation was really just getting started. The memo in question came from one FBI office in Richmond, Virginia, which suggested that traditional Catholic communities were somehow hotbeds of domestic terror. And the FBI was actively recruiting undercover agents to monitor and report on these communities. Here's an excerpt of what your committee's the letter to FBI Director Ray read this week. From information recently produced to the committee, we now know that the FBI relied on information from around the country, including a liaison contact in the FBI's Portland field office and reporting from the FBI's Los Angeles field office to develop its assessment. Congressman, uh, as you look at this, what does the new information you found about the FBI's original claim that the memo was only associated with one field office tell you? Well, it tells us a number of things, Raymond. Great to be with you. The, the first headline, the alarming fact, is that the director of the FBI himself, Christopher Wray, testified before our committee in July, and he said under oath, he was very emphatic, that this involved only one field office. Well, now we know, because we mm -hmm. have a, a further unredacted version of that document you referenced, that that's not true. It looks as though this was a whole of agency approach to target traditional Catholics. It, it sounds dystopian. It sounds Orwellian. It is. The FBI is engaging in the, the outright, I call it the steamroll of essential fundamental First Amendment freedoms of the American people. And we have to stop it. And Congressman, just to be clear, this memo was really to develop sources, spies, snitches within parishes. I mean, that's what the FBI's uh, calling for here, right? 
That's exactly right. They they were engaging in a program to try to recruit parishioners to spy on the, the people in the pews next to them or, or across from them. It, it's it's absolutely outrageous. It didn't go far in its implementation, we think, but the idea that they would they would engage in this uh, this practice and this scheme is is just unbelievable. Uh, but we we we're not surprised anymore what's come out of this Department of Justice from the very top, from the Attorney General Merrick Garland all the way down. They're, they're engaging these in activities that are hyper-partisan, hyper-political, and again, are infringing upon the free exercise of religion now. It's, it's, right. it's really out of control. How, how widespread do you think this, this um, department approach, and we're talking about the Department of Justice and the FBI, to intrude really on Americans' First Amendment right? And how does this square with what Director Ray has uh, testified to your committee? that it was well, this only is, isolated to one field office. Yeah, this is a real problem. I mean, that's the first issue that we have to address. The director was under oath when he told us that on July 12th. So he hmm. either perjured himself or this indicates that he, he doesn't know what's going on or he's lost control of the bureau itself. Any of those scenarios are alarming. But to answer your question, Raymond, this really is part of a larger problem within the Department of Justice. The FBI, of course, is just one division of that. But we know for a fact that they have been engaging in a scheme to to censor and silence not only conservative Catholics, but but all conservatives. They want to they want to Mm. stop our activities. They want to they want to uh, really chill the exercise of these First Amendment rights. And it's not just religious freedom. It's it's all speech. We know that there's this federal court opinion that came out of our home state of Louisiana on July 4th, I think symbolically, a 155-page federal court opinion where the judge looked at all the evidence and said, this may be the most massive attack on free speech in United States history. And he was referring to the Biden administration itself and its agencies like the FBI, because for in, in that case, they were meeting with the big tech platforms regularly in a, in, a, in a program to censor and silence conservative viewpoints and Christian viewpoints online. We know that happened. This is not a conspiracy theory. The, the judge has spelled it out. And so this is a serious problem. It's getting the attention of the American people, and it certainly deserves that. Yeah, Congressman, um, in the letter, you and the committee ask the FBI and Director Ray for additional information by August 23rd. What do you hope to find? And are you getting cooperation from the Bureau? Well, we haven't. They've been stonewalling us, which is part of the problem. We would have had all of this information and all these facts earlier in the year, except that uh, they, they never really did comply with our request. We had to subpoena the documents. When we got it, it was heavily redacted. This is now the third version of this one document we're talking about that, that each piece uncovers a little more and a little more. We've had it. I'm just telling you, the Weaponization Committee, the, the Judiciary Committee, we're, we're given the constitutional responsibility of oversight over these agencies. And we're going to have to take this to the next level. If they do not cooperate with us, we're going to give Director Ray an opportunity to correct his testimony before us. But if he does not, I think this rises to the level of, of a contempt charge. He's he's in contempt of Congress now. We may have to proceed that way. And and I'll tell you, the, ultimately, what is the greatest concern here, Raymond, and you and I have talked about this, is that people are losing their faith in our institutions, the system of justice itself, mm-hmm. the FBI, for crying out loud, the most the largest, most important law enforcement agency in America is losing the faith of the American people because the people are being targeted by the agency. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's really troubling. Congressman Mike Johnson, thank you for the update. Um, and we'll leave it there, but I hope you'll come back and keep us informed. We'll do it. Thanks for all you're doing. 
World Youth Day just completed, but overlooked was much of the content and the implications of the events themselves. And from it, what can we learn about the future of the church? Here with reaction and analysis is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of the thing.org, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. On August 4th, World Youth Day featured the usual Via Crucis, the Way of the Cross, but this one was offered with young people performing a choreographed dance featuring a young girl extending outstretched arms in front of the cross. We'll show the video. One social media commenter referred to the blue structure there as looking like it was built in Minecraft. Uh, The station's meditations reflected on climate change and intolerance. Father Jerry, what do you make of the emphasis on climate change and intolerance? I thought World Youth Day was supposed to be about focused on bringing youth to Christ. Uh, yes, it is. It should be that, Raymond. Yeah, this focus on uh, climate change, which is a uh, topic that's really best handled by scientists and meteorologists uh, and then you know government officials, it should not be a main focus of Catholic activity. In fact, I think it reflects a secularization of church activities. Uh, you're right. We should be focusing on salvation, prayer, sacraments. Uh, that's really where we're supposed to be focused. Yeah. And the young people, uh, you know, from what I saw from some of the coverage, the young people, that's why they were there. They were clearly trying to have an experience with Jesus. Bob, your thoughts. Yeah, I think a lot of what went on uh, distracted, obviously, from that main message. There there seemed to be Mm -hmm. some people in the uh, hierarchy, in the planning administration, who think that this sort of thing attracts young people And at a very superficial level, I suppose it does, you know, this uh, rap DJ and all this other stuff that uh, that we saw. But I I think it points it not only distracts, it kind of points away from the main uh, thing. And, you know, I noticed that when um, the Holy Father came and he gave his first address at the World Youth Day, what he said was this. I want to quote this. He said, here, too, there are examples of young people who, with their cry for peace and their desire for life, lead us to break down the rigid fences of membership erected in the name of different opinions and creeds. Now, you know, breaking down the so-called barriers between creeds, it seems to me, is giving away the distinctiveness of Catholicism and saying that something else is more universal than the universal church. And the, the things mm. that it's that the these events seem to point toward are, you know, we, we've, we've talked about this before, welcoming LGBT, you know, the environment, um, refugees, etc. When the World Youth Day used to be all about, and I, I think Father is right, that, that there was this hunger for among some of the young people who were there. But look, it's clear when you're saying we're breaking down the barriers between opinions and creeds. I don't even know what that could possibly mean. Does the church want to abandon its creed so that it can join some other group of indeterminate nature? Yeah, well, this is this is when when you start to analyze what was said, what was done. There, there's a counter message here that I think what the participants went for, as as you know that that I saw over and over again. And look, when you look at that Via Crucis, I couldn't help but think of World Youth Day 
in Denver in, in uh, 1993. And Reverend Mother Angelica's reaction to what she considered a blasphemous portrayal of Christ, her spouse, played by a young girl. This is how Mother put it. You can give nothing that builds. Everything you touch destroys. And you dare to depict Jesus as a woman. No. You're not going to be ordained as women. You have your rights. You have your church, obviously. But you have no right to stuff your truth or your lack of truth down everybody's throat. You have no right to depict Jesus as a woman. When you know the mind of the church, you know how the church feels. Well, I've made my statement. I don't care whether you like it or not. It's time somebody said something about all these tiny little cracks that you have been putting for the past 30 years into the church. Father Jerry, that was 30 years ago, and she was talking about the previous three decades. What has changed? Well, some things have changed, but others haven't. And certainly, uh, yeah, portraying a woman with her arms extended in front of the cross gives a kind of strange message, harking back to what Mother Angelica was talking about. I think Mother Angelica's point is profound about cracks, because that's precisely how things happen. It's not an, we don't, they don't destroy a building, you know, with a bulldozer, but you, a crack here, a crack there, take a brick out, suddenly things are falling apart. Um, you know, as Bob said, creeds don't divide people because the, the true creed of, of the Catholic Church unites people in Christ, who is the unique truth. So to say that we have to break down barriers between creeds, no, we have to break down barriers of unbelief. People who don't believe the creed are cut themselves off or are cut off even without their own fault through their ignorance. So that's what we have to break down, ignorance and lack of yeah. belief. Yeah. yeah, you make a great point. You know, Mother talked about that, the, tea, the teaspoon poison that's being fed over time. You know, it's a little bit here, a little bit there. And look, we take a lot of abuse and attack because we point out what others ignore. They just don't talk about the, the reality and the depth of what's said and what's done at these events and their implications. But I'm sorry, our job is to shine light on the entire, the entire event, not just ignore uh, you know, the uncomfortable bits. Bob, before this year's World Youth Day, we reported on the Portuguese bishop who was hosting it. He said that the purpose of the event was not to evangelize. So honestly, why bother? You know, despite the fact that you saw all these moments of genuine holiness from the young people, adoration, you know, where they had silence in the field and prayer. I mean, I do think they, they had a young, the young people had a genuine experience despite the organizers' intentions. Yeah, certainly there there are a number of them, and we you know we we tend to read the ideas and the doctrinal side of things, but right. if the experiences lead these young people eventually to a deeper understanding of Christ, if it if it, it attracts them to the church and holds them there for a while, and it won't play out for a long time, we can't we can't tell what it's going to do. Right. But I worry about using these means, especially the the, the uh, contemporary music, which I, I find has a very different spirit than the Christian spirit, by and large. I would say almost entirely. And so that stuff is fine for the priest who did it. It's fine for the certain type of people who like 
you know, contemporary, um, I don't even know what to call it, techno music, I guess is what they were calling it. But again, it's, we're all focused somehow, as, as if the more universal thing is not the universal church, but it's some some fratelli tutti that, you know, as we, we talk, talked about that document of the popes in the past, that yeah. sure, you know, in a secular sense, we want to be peaceful with one another, we want to engage one another, but we don't engage one another and we don't affirm one another's cultures and beliefs by saying, oh, yes, we're going to go past your creeds. I mean, if you tell let's say, a Buddhist, okay, we're going to go past your Buddhism and find a common ground in some other place. There may be a common good you know, pursuing, I don't know, um, environmentalism or whatever ever worldly good is out there. That's possible. But this kind of going beyond creeds to some universality, it just seems to me is not, it's not Catholicism. Yeah. If any theme dominated the papal comments, it was when Pope Francis affirmed that he included LGBTQ Catholics in his exhortation that everyone, 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 todos, 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 are welcome in the church. And the Pope then elaborated during his press conference on the flight home. Here's what he said. Uh, the church is open and uh, to everyone. And then there are rules that regulate life within the church. And someone who is inside and follows the rules cannot administer sacraments. This is to say it is a simplified way, like you said, but this does not mean it is closed. Everyone meets God in their own way within the church, and the church is mother. It guides everyone in their own way. Father Jerry, while true, the church welcomes everyone. What do you think Pope Francis is saying here? I mean, he talks about following rules. Well, the rules, obviously, is the moral law and revelation that sodomy is a mortal sin. So uh, the problem that uh, homosexual uh, people affirm the homosexual lifestyle has is that they want the Catholic Church to change the teaching. They want the Catholic Church to say that sodomy is good, that we're entitled to engage in it, and therefore the current rule has to go. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, the Catholic Church in this troubled time is constantly under assault by the woke culture, because we will not accept immorality uh, in the church. We certainly won't teach it. So it's very confusing for the Pope to say everybody's welcome, which, of course, is true, but not everyone's ideas are welcome. You know, you can't say that people who consider sodomy to be a good thing have a good idea. They don't. They have a wrong idea. It contradicts revelation and the natural law. So what happens here, unfortunately, uh, the impression is given that if a priest gives the doctrinal explanation in his parish, that he's unwelcoming. And if he, you know, in Germany right now, we had the, the Cardinal Wolke uh, sanctioned a priest who gave a blessing to homosexual couples in his church. But bishops from other dioceses said, we're not going to sanction priests to do that. So this kind of is the confusion that happens when the Pope says everybody's welcome because they take it to mean Everyone's welcome and we can do whatever we want. You can't. You, if you go against God's law, you are not being a good shepherd. And those bishops in Germany who are not sanctioning priests are not good shepherds. Mm -hmm. I, I want to move on to another story before we run out of time. Pope Francis wrote a letter, it really dovetails into what you're talking about. He wrote a letter to priests in the Diocese of Rome where he echoed some of his favorite themes. Uh, here's an example of what he had to say about spiritual worldliness. He says spiritual worldliness, in fact, is dangerous because it's a way of life that reduces spirituality to an appearance. It leads us to 
be traitors of the spirit, men clothed in sacred forms that in reality continue to think and act according to the fashions of the world. This happens when we allow ourselves to be fascinated by the seductions of the ephemeral, by mediocrity and habit, by the temptations of power and social influence, uh, and again, by vainglory and narcissism, by doctrinal intransigence and liturgical asceticism, forms and ways in which worldliness hides behind the appearance of piety and even love of the church, but in reality consists in seeking not the Lord's glory, but human glory and personal well-being. Bob, I'll start with you on this one. How, how do you think the priests of Rome took that message and the priests around the world? Well, I was happy to see when I read the letter that he thanked the priests of Rome for the work that they did in, this, the, very, in the second paragraph of that letter. So that, that is not a thing that we've heard a lot of from, from Pope Francis. And I know a number of priests who, who feel like all he ever does is criticize them. So, you know, let's recognize that in any rate. But, you know, the question that arises whenever I hear him talk about this is, is this the world that we live in? I mean, we're all Americans, and we're going to naturally read that, those sorts of things through the lens of our experience in the United States. But here in the United States, I, I mean, with all due respect to all the priests and bishops and et cetera out there, I don't know that being a, a prelate in the church today is all that prestigious uh, a position. You come in for an awful lot of criticism. To even accept being named a bishop, you'd have to be uh, very th thick-skinned and be prepared to face a lot of difficulties. I don't yeah. know who all these people are that he keeps talking about who have this spiritual world in this. Obviously, if we're going to be Pharisees and we're going to think of ourselves as all that, when in, in fact we all are sinners, that's a problem. Mm. And, and a, a priest, like any Catholic, ought to be aware of that. But the, the, yeah. the extent of this problem seems to me to be not as great as the Pope seems to devote to it on a regular basis. Maybe he knows something about the Diocese of Rome that I don't, but it seems to me most priests that I encounter when I'm in Italy are regular guys. They, you know, they believe in yeah. things. And look, what does doctrinal intransigence mean? If you, if you don't have doctrine that is firm, you know, I'm not saying aggressive and you use it as a weapon, but if it is firm, then it's not doctrine. And, and is there yeah. anything wrong yeah. with, with the aesthetic? Well, I mean, you can also obviously be, be uh, crazy about aestheticism, but there's nothing wrong with aestheticism yeah. either. Father, let's talk about that. He, he, the Pope does attack liturgical aestheticism, again, taking swipes at the traditional form of the liturgy. And he seems to be lasering in on what he calls doctrinal intransigence. Uh, if there's no doctrine, why bother with the church at all? You know, one moment he no, talks about following the rules, Father. In the next breath, he says the rules are somehow destroying the church. Right. Well, doctrinal intransigence is unfortunately a caricature of doctrinal fidelity or steadfastness. You know, we praise many of the saints because they were defenders of the faith. They were steadfast. You know, the saints who were called to deny Christ or the teaching of the church, and then they went to their death. So doctrinal intransigence is a way to caricature priests who will not bend to the doctrines of the day. Uh, as regards the liturgy, yeah, the Pope doesn't like the old mass. We know that from what he said. But I think he misinterprets uh, those who do like the mass as somehow being what we call aesthetes, meaning people who delight in beauty for its own sake and have, you know, notions of what is beautiful, which detract from the reality. I don't think that's the case at all. You know, I'll speak mm -hmm. as someone who attended two years ago 
a pontifical high mass celebrated by Cardinal Burke uh, with all of the beauty and, and splendor of, of a great choir. And I was at this mass as, as a priest in choir, and I was floored. I was stunned because mm. everything was laid out according to the rubrics. Everyone acted their role. But what got the greatest attention? When the, when the cardinal consecrated the most holy Eucharist and held up the host, the entire church was silent except for the bells. That's not aestheticism. That's a living expression of faith. And thank God that we have this beautiful gift of the old mass. And, you know, I think the Pope really has to rethink his hostility to it. Yeah, no. When, and when you hear that choir, you know, when you hear that beautiful Gregorian chant and those those magnificent silences in that mass, it strikes you. The beauty is striking. I mean, it, it, it stuns you in some ways after what you see throughout your daily life on the street and in the world. Another interesting pronouncement this week was Pope Francis's interview with a Spanish news outlet where he touched on his soccer skills. He played in the back as a goalie, but he also went after people with so-called right-wing ideologies, calling them the most dangerous faction in the church. He then called for a generation of priests who played soccer, quote, instead of going into communities to preach. We need normal seminarians with their problems who play soccer and who don't go to the neighborhoods to dogmatize. I'll start with Father, since he's most directly <laughs> affected by this, uh, Bob, and then I'll come to you. Father Jerry, you're boning up on your soccer skills out there? Well, I actually prefer ice hockey, but I'm retired from that at my <laughs> age. But no, I, I think sports are great, but there's no necessary counterposition. In fact, uh, to talk about priests to go and dogmatize, unfortunately, this goes back to what we said earlier about liturgical intransigence. The Pope is caricaturing people who preach the fullness of the creed. And this will upset people who deny the creed. And this pontificate, unfortunately, given the treatment, for instance, of Father James Martin, Father Martin is always criticizing the Church's teaching on homosexuality. He wants the Church to change the catechism. He's not alone in that. Uh, I prefer to say what Christ has revealed and what the natural law teaches must be affirmed and must be preached. And dogmatizing, eh, you know, that's that dogmatizing. This is not what, what preaching the truth is. You know, I've worked with courage with people who have homosexual problems. They love to hear the truth of the gospel and see how it brings liberation and freedom. Instead, what are we getting? Well, please, you know, don't say things that will upset people. That's dogmatizing and intransigent. Holy Father, I think this is not what we need to hear. I think you've missed the point here. Bob, uh, are we talking about seminarians or soccer chaplains? I'm not sure what the Pope is advocating here. Listen, Very I know a, 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 lot of, a, lot, lot of, a lot of seminarians, and they play soccer, or they play football, or they play baseball. They're regular guys. Mm -hmm. um, I'm repeating myself, but I, again, I want to know how many people are actually going into neighborhoods and dogmatizing. You know, they're going, if they're going into neighborhoods <laughs> to kind of solve social yeah. problems, they're, so, they're social workers, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they're not priests. And so I, you know, in this day and age, I think, we, again, we're Americans, and if we take the balance of what we see in the world, if there's any danger to the church, it isn't some crazy growing group, white, white uh, right-wing uh, people with, we he says, weird ideas in their heads. It's yeah. this, the slipping away of all truth. The, the slipping away yeah. of the, the historic reality of the faith. So, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, you're pointing to one small problem, but a very large problem is escaping the notice here. Yeah. And Bob, when you talk to priests in Europe, 
the United States, Canada, uh, Asia, Africa. The big the big thing, you know, uh, afflicting most of them is isolation and loneliness, a lack of, of fraternity. Uh, th- these things are never addressed. And forgive me, but when I was looking through pictures of the Pope's closest collaborators uh, and considered those soccer comments, with all due respect, they don't exactly look like Christian Ronaldo or David Beckham to me, but I'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking time out, and we will check in with the posse very soon. I am so excited. I have a big cover reveal for you. This is the cover of my forthcoming book, the new Turnabout Tale historic picture book. It's called The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln. It tells the largely lost story of Lincoln's youngest son, who was not only a source of comfort and joy to his father at his darkest moments, but together they established a national holiday tradition we continue to this day. It's a story of mercy and forgiveness and the power of a child in a parent's life and in the life of a nation. It's the perfect holiday book. It's available for pre-order now at the EWTN catalog, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books. It goes on sale October 3rd. The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln. Such an incredible story. And I'd really heard nothing about this until I stumbled on it in another work. You and your family will love it. And it's the latest in my Turnabout Tales series. The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln. Go get it now. I was really heartbroken this week to learn of the passing of legendary film director and my friend, William Friedkin. He died in Los Angeles on August 7th at the age of 87. And Billy, as many of you know, won a Best Picture Oscar for the 1971 classic, The French Connection. And he's best remembered for his 73 blockbuster, The Exorcist, on which he collaborated with my other dear pal, the late William Peter Blatty. I sat down with Billy Friedkin numerous times to interview him for this show. It was always a joy. We spent time at his home. He was just uh, insightful, irascible, endlessly engaging, and a true raconteur until the end. I'm most glad to have been able to call him a friend. Here are some of the great moments I had with Billy Friedkin over the years. In 2015, we talked about his amazing life and career, first making a name for himself as a documentary filmmaker and what The Exorcist was really about. Spoiler alert, he called it the mystery of faith. Let me start with when you go now to a mm-hmm. movie theater, what are you looking for? Um, intensity, uh, something that, I, that will hold me mm-hmm. and um, will make me a part of the story, a part of the characters. Most of, I don't see a lot of films mm-hmm. now. Most mm-hmm. of the films I see... Uh, that are made today um, lack any real passion. They're called um, projects now in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. They're not referred to as as movies, let alone films. They're all projects. Series. um... Well, they're designed, you know, just to um, attract the largest number of viewers, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I remember a time when films could be considered a work of art. Mm-hmm. I don't see that now. I was stunned to read that the father of The Exorcist, the French Connection, Bug, would say the MGM musical is the spine of the American film. Explain that to me. The MGM musical, the great musicals of the late 40s and early through the middle 50s mm-hmm. 
really represent the best that American films have ever made. They were all turned out by a studio, MGM, in a kind of factory manner. Um, They were all vehicles for people like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Mm -hmm. But to me, they're absolute perfection in every way. Mm -hmm. The photography, the choreography, the music, God knows, was by the people who created the American songbook. Gershwin, Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And... The, the, the dances are, are, that's something that's gone from American film. Yeah. Uh, it's not that um, people wouldn't like them anymore and they've moved on. It's that nobody can do that. Yeah. There weren't many of them. <clears throat> there might have been maybe a dozen. Huh. But to me, they still represent mm. as close as one can come to perfection in filmmaking. I want to talk about your incredible career and take you back to working Why at... Why lower the level? Well, no, no, I'm taking yeah. it up a notch here. I'm continuing. Mm-hmm. This is called the continuum. Uh, you worked at WGN in Chicago and started doing a lot of live television. What did you learn there that you mm-hmm. later utilized and that colored your work to the present day? Television uh, production is um, very different from film production. Mm-hmm and especially the kind of television programs that I did. They were largely interview programs, panel shows, news programs, sports, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of drama, a little bit of variety, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the techniques are totally different uh, from film techniques. What I learned, the main thing I learned when I started in the mailroom of a television station, which was WGN, and worked my way up to live television director was that it's very much of a team effort and it's all about communication. In order to get what you want, I learned back then in the late 50s and early 60s, you have to be able to communicate your ideas um, to a crew and a cast before you can communicate to an audience. And what it's all about is communication. Hmm. The idea of making a film or putting something on television is about communicating with an audience. And that's all it's about. The difference is this, Raymond. But the painter, the writer, the composer are working alone. The film director is working with a two-ton pencil. Hmm. You know, Hmm. um, literally at times... Thousands of people people. on some films, Mm -hmm. it's a collaborative effort, Mm -hmm. whereas the other art forms are not. Uh, You met with Blake Edwards about a script treatment he had of Peter Gunn. Mm -hmm. He let you read it, and at that moment, you met someone who would become a major collaborator in a future work, but you were not too hot on the script. I didn't like the script. It was... The script simply said by Blake Edwards, Uh who I had great admiration for. Mm -hmm. I thought then and think now he was one of the great American directors. Mm -hmm. And I was a kid who had done one little film with Sonny and Cher. (laughs) I told Blake I read his script with great interest and thought it was terrible. And when I said there was a bunch of people in the room... Uh, many of them were sitting in shadows around this enormous office Blake had at Paramount. And after I'd said to Blake I didn't like the script, I thought it was terrible, 
and he thanked me uh, for letting him meet an interesting person. <laughs> and as I was leaving, this guy followed me out of the office on the Paramount lot, and he introduced himself, and he said, I'm Bill Blatty. And he said, uh, I'm the guy who wrote that script. And I said, what? I says, it says by Blake Edwards. He said, well, Blake often does that. He said, but you know, you were right. I think you were right. The script does need a lot of work. We have all said the same thing to Blake, but he doesn't want to hear that. And um, I admire you for your honesty. And I said, well, thank you very much. We shook hands, and that was it. That was it. And four years later... He sent me uh, the manuscript of his novel, The Exorcist. You read The Exorcist in a San Francisco, was it a hotel? It came it's a hotel, hotel room that overlooked the entire Bay Area. Hmm. And you thought what as you sat to read that? I thought it was really a, a very uh, powerful and important piece of work. I thought, first of all, this is a great read. You know, th this is a wonderful story very well handled. The characters were well drawn. Mm -hmm. It was uh, 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 about the mystery of faith, mm -hmm. which you don't read too many no popular novels mm -hmm. coming along that mm -hmm. deal with the idea of faith in a, in a way that can be comprehended. Mm -hmm. And it was a disturbing and powerful story. And I... I was reluctant to read it. I carried it with me on a... I was on the road uh -huh. doing interviews for The French Connection, which right. hadn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. was about to. And the end of my tour was San Francisco, and I opened the book. Oh, and I started to read it, canceled my dinner plans, and Blatty included his phone number at the uh, bottom of the letter he sent me. And I called him, and I said, this is great. And he asked me if I'd be interested in making the film. Bill Blatty always considered this, the book and the subsequent film, an apostolic work. Yes. One that would awaken people to the nature of evil and, by proximity, the nature of good and faith. Mm -hmm. Did you see it the same way? I agree with that. Um, but we came at it from a different mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. Bill came as a believing Catholic, right. which he is. And I come to it as someone who believes in the teachings of Jesus Christ mm. as they're recorded in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and I made the film as a believer, not in all the tenets of the church, right. as Bill does, mm -hmm. but in the teachings of Jesus. Yes, that's, uh, that's still my position. Do you think that's why it has had the staying power and still has the resonance it has, spiritually speaking? You watch that film today. There is no doubt we are seeing the clash of not only good actors and great special effects, but there's something else happening there, that between that film and the viewer. Yes, it is a film about the constant presence of good and evil in, in all of our lives, mm -hmm. from the beginning of time, mm -hmm. Cain and Abel, you know, the, the constant, the, the Garden of Eden, the serpent. Mm -hmm. uh, there was always, there has always been a powerful demonic force attempting to undo the work of the Creator throughout all of history. There has always been, you know, whether he's called the devil or the adversary mm -hmm. or whatever, 
There has always been this clash of good and evil. It has always been the, the burden of goodness to triumph over the threat of evil. Do you see that as a through line that runs through all your work, that, that notion you just articulated? Absolutely, yes. Hmm. Yeah, let's go back and talk about the French connection. It is, even when you watch it today, it is so gritty. It feels so real. A lot of these scenes, though, particularly the chase, they were real. You didn't get permissions. You didn't get clearances for any of this. No. Tell me how that happened well, and I, how you did it without getting arrested. Well, I had the cops on my side <laughs> because it was a story about police heroism. Ah. And every off-duty police officer in New York helped to protect the set. Mm. And they were all carrying their badges. And in case I got stopped for breaking every imaginable traffic <laughs> law and other laws in the making of that film, mm -hmm. I had the cops around me to protect me. There's something you say in the book. There is an outlaw quality in so many of your works, particularly The French Connection, The Exorcist. And, and what I mean by that is this, and you, you, at the end of your book you write, good and evil coexist in me in all of us, and I believe it's a constant struggle for our better angels to prevail. This is a theme in all my films and remains a personal struggle. But I've been blessed with a loving, devoted wife and two wonderful sons I dearly love, and they constantly help me suppress my darker impulses. In spite of all the gifts God has given me, I still occasionally harbor anger and resentment. My salvation is to channel them into my work. How is anger and resentment channeled into the exorcist. Well, first of all, uh, I would take out one word if I was editing that today, and that would be occasionally. Okay. <laughs> uh, like everyone else I know, mm -hmm. I harbor all of the worst qualities of humankind. I believe they are built into our DNA. Um, I'm drawn to stories on film in which the characters exhibit those qualities. Mm. I'm not drawn to comedies yeah. or love stories or kind of, you know, mindless um, uh, film. Superhero <laughs> antics. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I can't even watch that stuff. I just don't believe it. I don't huh. buy it. Many others do, mm. and that's fine. Mm -hmm. The film industry... Uh, is built today on the, uh, on the idea of superheroes and supervillains. Mm. And I'm much more interested in human nature. The mm. proper study of mankind is man. And I guess to put it in a simple sentence, the thing that attracts me uh, more than anything about humankind is what Isaiah Berlin called the crooked timber of humanity. Mm. I just um, make films about characters whose natures I think I understand. Mm -hmm. That's all. You made a leap to opera directing. Now, this is a very different uh, uh, box of tricks and an entirely different approach. You can control everything in film. The angle, the, the, the lighting, the delivery. You can do retakes. Stage is such a different animal. Why did you decide to take on operatic directing? 
Uh, I've done about 15 operas in about 15 years. I've done some of the great operas ever written in some of the great opera houses of the world. Not all. But it's, it is not all that different. Really? The great singers that I've had the privilege of working with want the same thing as good actors. They want a psychological underpinning for their characters and a staging that works. You don't have a camera. That's the main difference. Right directing opera, but you're still working with the actor-singers in the same way. They want to give a performance. They don't simply want to come out and give a concert, Mm -hmm. because the great operas all tell a story and have characters. I can emphasize characters or de-emphasize them by the way I stage them with someone in the foreground or the background or the way I light them. The, way, the manner in which I set them. There was a moment in Puccini's great Suor Angelica that you directed where the angel of mercy appears in that production. Yes. And so many people I know who saw it, not all Catholic, were stunned by that moment. You had a major war with the composer over this. Not the composer, he's been I mean, dead. The, the, the conductor, I'm for, sorry. For That's right. almost Puccini. 100 years, Raymond. <laughs> Puccini's a little dusty right. at this point. Uh, I had a big problem with the conductor, James Conlon, who's Mm -hmm. a highly regarded conductor of Mm -hmm. opera. And he's the permanent conductor of the L.A. Opera. And he came to me when uh, I was setting up, because in the finale of Suar Angelica, Suar Angelica asks for the mercy of the Mother of Christ. And in Puccini's libretto, he says... The mother of mercy appears. He doesn't say a shadow of the cross goes across the stage, a stained glass window lights up. He says the mother of mercy appears. And I decided to make that moment real. And the conductor, Conlon, said to me, uh, listen, he took me aside. He said, you know, I had a Catholic education and I don't believe that stuff anymore. Mm. And uh, he said, I wish you wouldn't do that. And I said, Jim, I, I don't uh, really want to remind you of this, but this story is not about you or what you believe or don't believe or what, my, what I believe or don't believe. I said, I know you read music and conduct it beautifully, but can you read a libretto? <laughs> Can you read where it says here, the mother of mercy appears? That's what I'm doing. Mm. And after we did it, there was not a dry eye in the house. Mm. Men in tuxedos were weeping. Mm. Every woman in the house, non-believers. And Placido Domingo, who's the director of the L.A. Opera Company, said to me, Billy, tonight you have made all of Los Angeles Catholic. In 2018, Billy Friedkin returned to the show to talk about the 45th anniversary of The Exorcist and his return to the theme of demonic possession, for real this time, with his documentary, The Devil and Father Amort. I was even treated to a walking tour of Georgetown's Exorcist locations with the master himself. Watch. Father Amort begins every exorcism by thumbing his nose at the devil. In the room are Christina's family and other priests to assist Father Amort. Santa Maria, Madre di Dio, prega per noi peccatori, 
Joining me now is the Academy Award-winning director of The French Connection and The Exorcist to discuss his new documentary, The Devil and Father Amort. Would you welcome back to the program William Friedkin? Thanks, Raymond. Great to see you. Always good to see you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, I want to first talk about something, clear something up for me. I read the New York Times last week. Maureen Dowd said that you claimed the 1949 case that The Exorcist is based upon was, quote, jive. What does I didn't that mean? say uh, that I claimed it was jive. The 1949 case, which took place in Silver, uh, in Cottage City, Maryland, mm-hmm. misreported huh. as as Silver, Silver Spring, Spring right. and a bunch of other places. There's no evidence for that. There's no proof. Mm. What inspired Bill Blatty to write The Exorcist were reports of that case. Ah. News reports that said this had happened. This had happened, and it was a case of possession mm-hmm. and a successful exorcism. Now, that just passed along into history without people bothering to do a lot of research about mm-hmm. it. One fellow did and wrote a story that you can see on Wikipedia, yeah. which is definitive. It's called The Haunted Boy of Cottage City, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty authentic. Huh. And I believe over the years that I'm not saying that the case didn't happen the way it was reported, but the fact that it was reported was what influenced Blatty. Right. He did not use any of the characters. No, or he the circumstances. He the place, yeah. the circumstance, and he obviously had never seen an exorcism. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Now, Bill said he came into possession of one of the priests, one of the exorcist's diaries years later. That's what I've been told. Did you ever see that? No, but I, you know, I've been told by Bill's wife mm-hmm. that she still has the diary of the priest who did the exorcism, mm. Father William Bowdern, at mm. Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. Wow. In 1949. This week, we visited a few of the iconic Georgetown locations featured in The Exorcist, and Mr. Friedkin gave us insight into each location. Bill, why this house? Why did you choose this house as the house where the exorcism was going to take place. This is the house that Blatty had in mind when he wrote the novel. It was the closest house to the steps, but as you'll see, it wasn't close enough. (laughs) But it was the house. This is the exterior of the house where we filmed The Exorcist. It's 3600 Prospect in Georgetown. As you will see in a moment, It is not anywhere near enough to the steps, which are a good, I don't know, 25 to 30 yards away. So what we did, that fence was not there. We had to put up this fence for her later to protect the house, but that fence wasn't there. What we did was we built a false front and a false extension from the end of that house to where the stairs begin, a lot of scenes shot at that front door, both looking out this way and looking back into the house. This is the beginning of the area of the exorcist steps. 75 steps from just a few feet away to the bottom. Uh, 
The false front came out to here where these trees are. The girl's bedroom window is just up there where I'm pointing, right up here. And the stuntman went out a window in the soundstage first. He jumped from the little girl's bedroom window in the soundstage and it finished off with a shot of him coming out that window right above me which looked exactly like the house was extended this far. The stuntman came out of where I showed you and he landed on that first landing. That's pretty far. All of the steps and the corners were padded with rubber. So he was landing on a padded surface and he was all padded, but it was an incredible jump from right up there where I just showed you to the first landing where he hit. And that's the only place from which I filmed the jump. I also rigged a camera there's a shot in the sequence, if you see it again, where I rigged a camera on wires to go out the window so it looks like a POV shot. All the way to the bottom, where that gentleman is now, and over that plate is where Father Karras dies in a pool of blood and receives the last rites from his friend, Father Dyer. Now, why 45 years later would William Friedkin go back and focus again on something you said you'd never focus again on in film? And I quote you, I would never do anything with demonic possession or exorcism in it. Why do this documentary now? Because I believe in its authenticity mm -hmm. and I would never do anything, I, I still say, in fiction. I would never do a fiction version of it again. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to meet Father Amort quite by accident. I asked him if I could interview him for Vanity Fair magazine. Mm -hmm. He gave me a long, it turned out to be 6,500 word interview wow. for Vanity Fair. That's a book. Yeah. <laughs> And it was reprinted everywhere. Mm -hmm. And during the course of the interview, he's the most spiritual man I've ever met, Raymond. Mm. And I asked him at the end of the interview if he would ever allow me to witness an exorcism, mm. thinking he would not. And he said, well, let me think about it. And a couple of days later, I got an email from his, uh, the head of the Pauline Order in Rome mm -hmm. who said that Father Amort would allow me to witness an exorcism on May 1st of 2016. Wow. And I had originally met him in March. So uh, once he said, okay, you can witness this, which permission is never granted. Right, never. I can tell you, never, and rightly so. Mm -hmm. um, I then pushed my luck and said, well, would you let me film it, Father? Mm. And word came back two days later saying you could film it but alone, with no crew and no lights. Huh. So I went in with a little still camera that shoots high-definition video and, sh and sat two feet away from them while they were doing it. Wow. Now, you say the exorcism, and Bill Blatty used to tell me the same thing. The exorcist, he said, is about the mystery of faith. Is that what this documentary, The Devil and Father Amortis? 
to some great extent, certainly. I mean, there's no proof of anything, Raymond. Mm -hmm. There is not one person in this entire world that know the greatest philosophers, religious scholars, whatever, do not know if there is a heaven, a hell, an afterlife, why we were born, what our purpose is here. It's never going to be revealed until, let us assume, there is an afterlife. Mm -hmm. But Bertrand Russell, Teilhard de Chardin, uh, all were offering informed opinion and belief. Mm -hmm. But there's no hard evidence. If you, if you need a fact, there are those who need to have their hands in the blood in order mm -hmm. to believe. Now, I have tremendous faith in the teachings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. But I don't know anything, and neither do people a thousand times smarter than me. Mm -hmm. Give me a sense of the, what this means to you as a filmmaker. You started your career doing a documentary about a man on death row, The People versus Paul Crump. And here you are, all these years later, doing another documentary focused really on the thing you're probably best known for as a filmmaker, exorcism, the exorcist. Why make that journey? Any trepidation about turning this into a film once you had the footage of the real exorcism? Yes, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Mm -hmm. I filmed it because Father Amort allowed me to film it, mm -hmm. and the woman and her family said, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, then I thought, well, what? I didn't think I would make a documentary out of it. I mm -hmm. thought I would have this mm -hmm. to show to interested people. Mm -hmm. And then I got the thought to take it to some of the leading brain surgeons in the country and the leading psychiatrists. Why did you do that? Well, I felt that they would either debunk it and or explain in medical and psychological terms what it was. Mm -hmm. What did Father Amort and his lifelong example teach you, not about evil, but about good? That a man was there willing to devote his skills and his life to helping to liberate people of what they believed what had them completely in check and in choke. Mm -hmm. Their lives were not their own, and they went to Father Amort as a last resort, mm. and he liberated many of them. But he never believed he did the liberation. They always call upon Jesus to do the exorcism. That's what the prayer is. It's not the priest as, come at, out of there. as yeah. in my film at one point saying, I cast you out. Mm -hmm. It's Jesus that they're praying to, to cast out the demon. Mm -hmm. And that's what Father Amort believed. And I believed in him mm -hmm. and still do. What do you want people to take away from this project? After seeing this film, what do you hope it's going to accomplish? Well, it was better said by Shakespeare mm -hmm. in his play Hamlet, when he had Hamlet say to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Mm. And that's my belief. My, my dear pal, the great William Friedkin, rest in peace. And I know he's arguing with our friend Bill Blatty. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.